Good morning. Um, my name's Nick. Uh, for those who are here for the first time or early time, or as I say, those with poor memory. Um, um, so I'm just going to briefly pray. We've prayed a few times this morning. I'm going to briefly pray uh, as we come to God's Word to unpack it this morning. It's been a busy morning with the, the joy of kids, and we've got carols coming this afternoon, and, um, and, and Russell uh, reminded me that that made it uh, presentation 15.3 thousand this morning with the kids' church presentation. So I want to pray that, that in the busyness of this season, we don't kind of uh, miss what God wants to say to us through the, the message of Uh, the Christmas story, Um, and then let's jump into it. So, Father, we thank you this morning for the birth of Jesus. We thank you for that um, world-changing moment, the event of Jesus' uh, birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ministry on earth. Uh, We thank you for, for, for that time in history that has changed everything for us, not just for our history, but for our eternity. And so as we reflect on part of that story this morning, as we think about this story involving these wise men or these magi this morning, I pray that we wouldn't miss what you would say to us and do in us because of the busyness of this morning or the busyness of this season of life. We pray that our hearts would be stilled this morning and ready to receive. I pray that our our hearts would be fertile soil, ready to produce a harvest from your word this morning. And so, Father, we pray that as we speak and as we reflect on these uh, words of Scripture for the next little while, that you would have your way in us, that we wouldn't leave unchanged this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, so so the, the, the story of the wise men is something that we may be familiar with or at least familiar with the idea of, of wise men in our nativity scenes. And so we have three different nativity scenes at home. One's a little people one that uh, you push the top uh, where the angel sits and it plays uh, Silent Night for a few seconds. We've got one that uh, my wife Christy bought uh, from a shop uh, on special, but it's very valuable, um, which causes a degree of anxiety with three young children in the house running around near that. Um, so sometimes it gets kind of hidden away uh, in the bedroom. And we've got another little porcelain one. Two of the three have wise men right there in the scene uh, around the, the, the manger with baby Jesus in it. And so we're familiar with this idea of, of wise men as part of the, the nativity story, the Christmas, Christmas story. And like all kinds of familiarity, this, this familiarness with the story can, can make us miss the significance of it. As they say, familiarity breeds contempt. In reality, this is an incredible story. This is an amazing story. It's almost comical, the, the, the remarkableness of this story. As we come to this, the narrative has actually moved forward about two years. Uh, we, we know that from the second half of, of chapter 2 that Deb's going to reflect on next week. And so the story's moved forward uh, almost two years and, and so Jesus is no longer a, a, a baby in the manger and so the, 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 the wise man standing around the manger is a historically accurate image and so you should all remove your wise men from your nativity scenes and, and cast them aside. Uh, no, that's not the point of this morning. Um, and I want to kind of engage with this story this morning because we either do that, we either have them all lumped in as part of the nativity or we just cast them aside and don't think about the significance of it. And so I want to kind of connect with this remarkable story this morning that happens somewhere between a year to two years after the birth of Jesus. 
And so we're introduced to this story in the first two verses of Matthew chapter 2 with these words. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, which is, is the word that we've often translated wise men, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born the King of the Jews? We saw his star and when it rose, sorry, we saw its star when it rose and have come to worship him. And so this first two verses introduces us to the three key characters of this story or three key groups of characters, the the Magi or the wise men, King Herod and Jesus. These wise men have come uh, 900 miles about if they've come from Babylon, which is one of the most likely places, or 1,500 kilometres for those uh, who can only think in kilometres. So they've, they've walked essentially 500 miles and 500 more to come and worship Jesus. These Magi are, are, are ancient scientists. They're, they're kind of scientists, astrologers who, who study the sky. They're, they're also wise men uh, who, who are high-level participants in the royal court of, of eastern countries. They're diplomats. They're also kind of quasi-religious figures in the life of eastern religion. And so we often think about three of them, these Magi, because there's three gifts they gave to Jesus. Um, three men journeying alone, just the three of them across desert after desert on the back of camels. Well, most likely there there could have been three, there could have been 50. But but given the status of these men, uh, these these magi in in their eastern um, culture in Babylon or in a similar place out east of of Jerusalem, they wouldn't have been travelling alone. So what's in view here is not a, a few men on camels arriving in Jerusalem. What's in view here is a large entourage of foreign dignitaries arriving in Jerusalem. As the next verse, which we'll jump to in a moment, says, all of Jerusalem was aware of this. This is a large royal entourage coming into Jerusalem that have travelled a long way to get there. And so we've got the Magi and they come to a man named King Herod. And so Herod was the, the king of Israel at the time of Jesus' birth. He was a tyrant and brutal king. And he was only king not because he was the rightful king. In fact, he, though he was raised a Jew, he wasn't actually Jewish. He was from, from uh, Edom, or the, not called Edom in Jesus' day, but from the neighbouring tribes, the, in fact, who had been enemies of the Jews for, for much of history. He was the king because he'd cozied up next to Rome. And so he was a client king of Rome. That means that Rome ruled over the area and they allowed instead of, at the time of Jesus' birth, instead of a governor of Rome ruling, they put King Herod on the throne. And so he was a usurper. And so these magi come uh, almost a thousand miles to Jerusalem looking for the one born king of the Jews and they see Herod, the tyrant, usurper king on the throne. The third key character in this story is Jesus. Not in the major anymore, but a toddler or an infant living in Bethlehem now with his family, his peasant parents. And so though we know Jesus to be, from, from last week's story, the Son of God, one who's born from Mary, the virgin birth, the Holy Spirit uh, put the child Jesus within her and, and it's this miraculous story and we know who Jesus is, but in this moment, in earthly terms, he's as vulnerable as a child could be. 
living just 10 kilometers in Bethlehem from the usurper king, the tyrant in Jerusalem. As I said, Deb will reflect more on how that pans out next week. And so these Magis have arrived to worship the king of the Jews. And in this time in, in history, one of the Roman uh, historians, Suetonius, um, who, who mostly wrote about how awesome Augustus Caesar was, uh, recorded in his history that throughout the east, throughout the area of Babylon, uh, where many Jews still lived even after the return from exile, there became this strong belief, uh, most likely that came out from the Jews in their prophecies, that, that a ruler would arise from Judea and rule the earth. And so it wasn't just uh, Jewish people who had this hope that, that those who kind of, uh, that like these magi, like these wise men who would have poured over scriptures from lots of different religions, there, there was many that had this belief that someone will arise from Judah and rule the earth. And so these magis have come to worship that person. And so the story moves forward in verse 3. It says, when, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And so this, the arrival of this, this entourage of, of Magi and uh, this, this, this train, in an essence, of people that arrive from, from a foreign land, these foreign dignitaries arriving in Jerusalem, caused a disturbance. And not just kind of a, a rustle, this is a negative word. They're upset about this news. And so Herod's response was, was to seek to cling to his throne. He was a usurper who, who tried to keep his backside on the big chair. And, and so, uh, as, as Deb will share next week, that he, he actually responded with a great deal of violence and he sought to try and trick the Magi into giving him the exact location of Jesus so that, not so that he could worship him as he said to the Magi, but so that he could go and snuff out this threat to his rule. And so on some levels, we might expect that from Herod. That's how he got on the throne. And we, we shouldn't necessarily expect someone so tyrannical and brutal as Herod to instantly go, oh, there's another king. Okay, well, my season of ruler, being the ruler is done. I'll step off the throne and, and bring him here and we'll hand things over to him. We might not have expected that of Herod. But what I want us to capture here is not just Herod's response, but Jerusalem's response. Jerusalem have lived under Roman occupation, which is manifest through this tyrant, usurper king, Herod. And they, through these foreign dignitaries, received news that the long-awaited Messiah has been born. And where is he? And they're with Herod. King Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Jerusalem's not just the capital city of Israel, it's the religious center of Israel. It is the, the, the place where the worship of, the, of, of Yahweh happens. It's the place where the religious scribes congregate. It's the place that was most anticipating the birth of the Messiah. This should have been the place in which people should have been most overjoyed and excited and, and celebrating and, and looking to worship the, the born Messiah. This is just 10 kilometers from Bethlehem where Jesus is living with his parents. They should have been overjoyed. There should have been a crowd going to worship Jesus, but instead they cling to the status quo. 
They cling to their own positions of authority and power, be that religious scholar, be that high priest, be that kind of just regular Joe, comfortable with the status quo and their position in life. Instead of celebrating the birth of of the Messiah, they clung, like Herod, to their own thrones. They sought to cling to their own self-rule over their life. The tragedy of this is they were 10 kilometres, less than 10 kilometres, 9.3 today, apparently, if you travel via Hebron from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. So close. Yet their hearts were so far away. It was time for Herod to step off the throne and, and we can kind of get why he wouldn't, but it wasn't just time for Herod to step off the throne to get out of the chair, so to speak. It was time for every person in all of creation, especially the Jews who were long awaiting the Messiah, to get out of their own thrones, to get off their own chairs and to worship Jesus. Instead, they sided with Herod's rule and their own rule over their life. And so the challenge for us this morning from that is, is it time for us to get out of our chair? I don't just, I mean chair as in a throne this morning. I mean, is it time for us to stop clinging to our own thrones? We can be critical of Herod and and think, well, you know, the real king's come, he should step aside. We can be critical of Jerusalem and think, oh, Jesus was just there and and you chose your own status quo in life, your own self-governance and self-rule over falling at the feet of Jesus and worshipping. We can be critical of that, but we need to take a look in the mirror ourselves. Are we prepared to step out of our own thrones, to get out of our own chairs of self-leadership, of self rule of self-reign, of self-importance and invite Jesus to come and sit on the throne of our life? Are we disturbed at the thought that there's someone else who should be Lord of our life other than us or are we overjoyed? And so the Magi had this conversation with Herod where he, he pretended to kind of be really interested in coming to worship Jesus and uh, he got the religious scholars together and said, well, where, where was the Messiah born? And so the star had led them to Jerusalem. Uh, they'd heard that the king of Jews had um, believed he had been born because they'd seen a star which uh, lots of people kind of try and work out what was the star. It was most likely just a miraculous occurrence rather than an astrological phenomenon um, because it came you know, in a... In a moment's time, we'll read that it came to rest over uh, Jesus' house um, where he was. And so they followed this star to, to find the king of the Jews. And so most likely, you would think, well, he must be in the palace in Jerusalem. Uh, and so the religious scholars said no. They realized instantly that King Herod or any of his children weren't uh, the ones that the Magi had come to see. And so they said, well, he's in Bethlehem. And so after this conversation, the, the Magi set out in uh, In verse 9 and going on from there, we read, After they had heard the king, they went on their way, um, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Not disturbed, but overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. 
Just picture this scene. This is a peasant family with a toddler and a foreign, an entourage of foreign noblemen and diplomats and all their hangers-on and their baggage train and they find a peasant family. The least royal-looking situation you could comprehend. They've just been to the palace because that's what they may have been anticipating. But when they find Jesus and the mother Mary, they, they don't react thinking, whoa, this must not be the real king. The star must have it wrong. They didn't uh, check their navigational direction and go, well, we must be, maybe it's the house next door and, and, and go knocking house to house to find someone that looked like a king. They found Jesus and his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. Much has been made throughout history of the nature of these gifts that, that they might mean particular things and so that gold might mean that Jesus is royal. Frankincense may mean that he is uh, divine because frankincense was used in the incense at the temple and myrrh might point towards his sacrificial death because uh, myrrh was used to perfume uh, the corpses of dead people so that they didn't stink once they were buried uh, in tombs. But the main thing we're meant to grab out of this is that these people worshipped at the feet of Jesus. They had come 500 miles and 500 more. They'd come from far off, not just geographically though, they'd come from far off uh, religiously. These were not Jewish people. These were not people that worshipped Yahweh. These were not people who were of uh, God's chosen people that were waiting for God's Messiah to come, yet they worshipped him. They were also far off ethnically. They, they were far off in every possible category that you could consider people far off from God, but they came and they found a toddler that a, a, a miraculous star had led them to. They had this belief that he was the king of the Jews, but obviously they had this belief that he was so much more than that, and they bowed down at the feet of a toddler and worshipped him. Jesus, the Messiah of the Jews, is bigger than just the King of Israel. He's the Lord of all and worthy of all worship. And so as we think about this story, as, as we think about not the familiar scene of, of wise men in the nativity scene, but as we think about this ridiculous story that God would lead these noblemen from far off so that someone would worship Jesus because those who were close religiously, ethnically and geographically did not. As we think about this story, this is the one thing that I want us to grab from it. This is what this story points us towards today. It is that Jesus is worthy of worship. Jesus is worthy of worship. Jesus is worthy of worship before any of his ministry. Jesus is worthy of worship before he has taught a single thing. Jesus is worthy of worship before he's healed a single person. He's worthy of worship before he's raised anyone from the dead. He's worthy of worship before he's walked on water. He's worthy of worship even before his death 
and His resurrection. He's worthy of worship before He ascends to the throne in heaven. Jesus is simply worthy of worship, even when He's a toddler. In fact, Jesus has always been worthy of worship before there was people in which to worship. Jesus was worthy of worship. In fact, Jesus alone is worthy of worship. But Jesus is worthy of worship when our life is growing fantastic. When we're blessed and overflowing, Jesus is worthy of worship. But Jesus is also worthy of worship when life is hard and tough and the well is dry. Jesus is worthy of worship. Jesus is worthy of worship when you're capacities are working when you're free and easy and feeling fit and healthy and Jesus is also worthy of worship when you've broken your arm and I say that because I'm not sure how many people notice hopefully no one noticed because we're so focused on worshiping Jesus but but Eliza was leading worship this morning and playing the piano with a broken arm and a cast on it because that broken arm doesn't reduce Jesus worthiness of worship Jesus is simply worthy of worship. And no one else is. These foreign dignitaries enter the scene and, we, and they leave the scene and we're told in verse 12 that they, they, they were warned in a dream to, that Herod was up to no good and so they, they uh, snuck out of uh, Israel um, through the back door which... There's no easy thing with a large entourage of dignitaries um, from a town that was only 10 kilometres from uh, Jerusalem and they had to go past Jerusalem to get back east. But they enter the scene, they leave the scene and they leave us with this truth. Jesus is worthy of worship. And so I want to finish this morning by by asking you to ask yourself, what is your posture? What is your posture? This story kind of contrasts for us the near and the far. We see a picture of those who are near just just 10 kilometres, a distance that most of us on a good day could probably walk. They were just 10 kilometres from the Messiah, the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, the, the being, only being in which in all of history is worthy of worship. They were so near in every way we could possibly say near, but yet they were disturbed and turned their backs the other way. And in fact, in, tried to snuff out the author of life. But we also see the far, we see those that that are so far off in every possible way, but they come with a determination to worship Jesus, to worship the King of the Jews, no matter what they find. No matter what it looks like, no matter how hard it was to get there, no matter what obstacles were on their way, they had a purpose and it was to worship Jesus. They stated that purpose to Herod. We've come to worship the King of the Jews. And when they found Jesus in the most unlikely of places, they did that. They bowed down and worshipped. What is your posture? 
Would you go a thousand miles to worship Jesus or are you so close but missing it? Are we getting off of the thrones of our own life and inviting Jesus to come and sit in the place of rule over our lives and bowing down at his feet and worshipping or are we trying to cling to our own authority, our own rights, our own self-rule? The tragedy of our existence and the tragedy of, of the church, and I'm not speaking here specifically of us or anyone in this church in particular or any other church in particular, but the tragedy of so much of church life is we come so near to Jesus. You know, we're in church week in, week out, we come so near to him. But so often for so many we balk, we're disturbed at the point of getting out of it, off our own throne, inviting Jesus to take the rule over our life and taking our one true responsibility to heart and worshipping at the feet of Jesus. So whatever your posture is this morning, whether, I uh, can't see anyone face first on the, on the ground at the moment physically, um, and it may not be from a desire to worship Jesus if that was the case at the moment, but whatever your posture is this morning, the posture of your heart, whether you are near but far or whether you would walk 500 miles and 500 more to fall at the feet of Jesus and make it your single undivided purpose to simply worship Him. Whatever your posture is right now, I encourage you to shift your posture towards Him to embrace this as the fundamental truth of your life, that Jesus is worthy of worship. We're going to invite our worship team, broken arms and all, to come and lead us uh, in a worship song and then we're going to um, take a time of sharing in communion together to reflect on what he has done for us. But this story, this historical event reminds us that we don't simply just worship Jesus for what he has done for us, that it's, it's some kind of transaction um, that, that he, he went to the cross and so then we've, we've got to kind of make that up and worship him. That's not how it works. Jesus has always and will always be worthy of worship. He has always and will always be worthy of all our adoration. And it's out of who He is that He went to the cross on our behalf. It's out of the glory of who He is that He conquered death for us. It's not a transactional thing. It's just a simple truth, the foundational truth perhaps of all the universe that Jesus is worthy of worship. And so let's take a moment to do that in song this morning before we remember the gift of the cross and resurrection through communion. If you've been blessed and encouraged by this message, we'd love for you to become a part of the Ash Baptist family. 
Log on to ycbc.church to find out more.